just a little bit about me, Vital Church. I'm one of the uh, managing partners. There's five of us. And we, Vital Church does three things. We do um, diagnostics, we do intentional interims, and we do some coaching. I think what's really distinctive about us at Vital Church is that we're not consultants, we're pastors. And so we want everything to be done in a pastoral way and with the shepherd's heart, even the diagnostic piece. Uh, that's, we love the church, that's why we do what we do. And so um, I think that's important. I hope that you will um, do the survey. Uh, I had a chance to look through it. I have access to the survey. I won't have much to do with the diagnostic piece when it comes around. But uh, the women are ahead of the men by 60% to 40%. So guys, if you want to be represented, uh, get online and, and do the survey. I also think uh, students are capable of doing the survey. I think it's up to the church to decide what age should or shouldn't. But I would say 15, 16 on up. Uh, that I want the young people's uh, insights and opinions represented in the survey as well. Uh, so um, I do think, there's always people, my first time in the church, I think I was a, uh, what I call a permanent pastor for 16 years and director of training for a mission agency that planted churches in Europe where I did my first couple of interims. And I've been doing this for the last 20 years. And I'm well aware that there's people in every congregation on the first Sunday that are like, why are you here? You know, let's just get on with it, get us a preacher, and let's keep moving. But I just think it's really wise to recalibrate, to take a time out, take a moment, and, uh, and to consider together, congregationally, you know, what is best. What is, one of the questions that we always ask, what's the Holy Spirit saying to the church at this time? That's what we want to know, and that's what I hope you want to know. And so it's good to take a time out and recalibrate, refocus, reaffirm who you are, and then... The more work you get done in any transition season, the higher caliber of pastor you will attract. So that's my story and I'm sticking to it. I wanna introduce my family to you, just uh, they're not here. Uh, you'll get to meet Linda one of these days. And um, this was just a couple weeks ago. We had a family vacation at the beach and everybody was able to be there. And so we have three daughters and a son and some grandkids, and so Vanessa is number two. She lives up in Victoria, Canada with her family. Here's my wife, Linda, peeking out over the, over the top there. Amaris and her family, she's number one, uh, our oldest daughter. And then Kaylee and her three boys are over here. Uh, they live in the Long Beach area. And then our son Kyle and his family live in San Francisco. And so uh, we finally got everybody over to the West Coast from Victoria down to LA. They were all over the country. And so that's part one of my master plan is to get them all in the same time zone. And then if we can get them scrunched together a little more in the days ahead, that'll be, that'll be good. So that's, you'll get to meet Linda. I don't have her come early on because if people meet her too soon, they like her more than me. And we just, we, we, we just can't have that. Uh, that's just unacceptable. Uh, so, but she'll be out. She's a teacher, and she's back at school like some of your teachers are. So with all that being said, we're going to be in the Gospel of John today. I want to look at just one verse. It's going to be um, chapter 14, uh, verse 15. And John, just to provide a little context, John was uh, the, probably the youngest of the 12 early disciples that became the 12 apostles. 
And lots and lots of theologians would term or call John the apostle of love because of how much he talked about and wrote about John. We have his gospel, and then probably when he's in his late 80s, 90s is when he wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And uh, the stories are that they used to have to carry him out and set him uh, in the middle to address the people uh, there for those uh, three letters that he wrote. So I'd like to, de- to begin today by, by making one assumption and then asking uh, one question. So here's, here's my assumption that we'll begin with. My assumption is we are all theologians. We're all theologians. Even atheists and agnostics are theologians. A theologian, the study of God, a theologian are, are people who have thoughts and perspectives about God and then live their life accordingly. So we're, in that sense, we're all theologians. Uh, here's the thing, though. We're either good ones or we're bad ones. And I think we should do our best to try and be good and strong theologians. I want you, when you're on Amazon looking for a devotional or a book for your Bible study or something like that, I want you to pick the good folks because there's lots of really bad stuff out there. And so how do we know what we're looking for? That's a good thing. So I want to show you a little Peanuts cartoon here. Uh, uh, We have Lucy and Linus. And here's my assumption, we're all theologians. It's raining outside. Lucy says, boy, look at it rain. What if it floods the whole world? Linus says to her, that will never happen. In the ninth chapter of Genesis, God promises Noah that would never happen again. And the sign of the promise is the rainbow. And then Lucy says, you've taken a great load off my mind, to which Linus replies, sound theology has a way of doing that. And so that's what's important about theology is is that it takes a lot off our mind. We understand a little bit about more, more about who God is and, and then who we are. And so that's, that's my assumption. We're all theologians. Here's my question. Is your theological orientation rooted in duty or delight? Good question, isn't it? I happen to be um, raised Catholic and I have great appreciation of my Catholic faith, and I'm sure there's some of you, if not many of you, who are raised Catholic, maybe still consider yourself to be Catholic. And with my great appreciation for that, the, the, the official doctrinal statement of the Catholic Church is that salvation is the result of grace plus works. And so, some of you may have been raised in a theological context that was maybe legalistic, or what we might call moralistic, where obedience was the goal of the Christian life. So a lot of us come from that place. And so what we want to do today, what I'd like to do today is is for us to ask that question, is my theological orientation rooted in duty or is it rooted in delight? And I think this verse will help us to see that. It's important to grapple with these questions. It's going it's to permeate your devotional life. It's going to permeate your communication of the gospel. And so regarding duty or delight, I, I, I certainly want to say that duty and delight are not at odds with one another uh, in the Christian life. There's very real duty and there's very real delight, and they are supposed to work together. But what I want to ask is, is where is your theological orientation 
rooted? Where's, where's your theological base camp, that place from which you uh, emerge from on a regular basis? Here's an illustration that might help. <clears throat> Picture me bringing a bouquet of flowers to my wife, Linda, on our wedding anniversary. I come to her, she, she comes to the door, I hold them out to her, and she says, Greg, these are beautiful. And then her next question would be, who picked them out for you? There's that. But then she would say, thank you for remembering our special day. Then suppose I say something like this, Linda, it is my duty to acknowledge the solemn vow that I made to you 41 years ago today. Now, how would that go over, ladies? What's, what's wrong with that statement? There, you, you know, the duty is not a bad thing. So, so why are you feeling sorry for Linda right now? There's that. There's that. Duty, while it's not a bad thing, it can only take us so far. If you want romance, we're going to have to move to delight. That's, a, that's an important part. A better answer to Linda's question might be something like this. You are the best thing that's ever happened to me. You're my best friend. You're my lover. You're an amazing mother to our children. You've stood by me when I was at my worst. You've loved me unconditionally for all these years. I would be absolutely lost without you. Happy anniversary. See the difference? There's one that might lead to some romance, and there's one that definitely won't. There's that. There's that. So it's from this vantage point today that I'd like to look at this one verse today from, again, John 14, 15. And you've heard it before, most of you. And it's, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And let me just say this. If you're a guest with us today and church thing new and Jesus thing is new to you, this will be, <clears throat> excuse me, very helpful for you because I think it speaks to the essence of what a Jesus follower is and what a Jesus follower does. And then if you've been around this thing called church for a while, I think it, it helps us to evaluate where our base camp is in terms of theology. And so I think everybody in the room can, um, can get something out of this. There's at least two ways to view this verse that we're talking about. One way is to see it as, as the overriding goal is obedience. And a paraphrase for that perspective would be, if you love me, prove it by being obedient to me. Or is the overriding goal love that leads to obedience? How we view this verse tips our hands about regarding our theological base camp. Is it duty or is it delight? If you have an obedience orientation or do you have a grace orientation? So I would like to submit to you that the goal of this verse that we're looking at is not obedience. The primary focus of this verse is love. So I'd like to take the remaining time that we have together to ask and answer two questions, and I'll give them to you up front. We'll go back and look at them one at a time. Number one, what does it mean to love Jesus? 
And then the second question that we'll get to, what's this, what is obedience? What's the first stage? What's the first steps of me being obedient to God? So we'll go back to what does it mean, <clears throat> excuse me, to love Jesus? I think it's important to view this verse with the broader context of the gospel. The essence of the gospel is that it's not good advice. It's good news. And not only that, it's rooted in history. It's rooted in history. I think what separates Christianity from, and I would say this, literally every other religion, every other philosophy of life, is that Christianity is not based on what we must do in order to please or appease God. Every other religion, every philosophy of life is based on what you and I must do to please or appease God. Christianity is just the opposite. It's focused on what Christ has already done for us. Every other religion, philosophy of life tries to reach out, reach up to God Christianity is about God reaching down to us. Here's how theologian and author John Piper says it. Loving Jesus is not a matter of doing excellent things. It's a matter of delighting in an excellent Savior. In some church contexts, you hear this do, 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 do. But the Christian reality is done, 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 done. See the difference and where our theological base camp might lie in the midst of that. So as we practically prepare our hearts, and I, sometimes I'll refer to it as, as Christianity's get to, and religion is have to. So how do we get from have to to get to? And so I, I want to talk a little bit about how we reorient ourselves to love Jesus. And I have three overlapping thoughts, kind of based in my own experience, that I want to share with you. So the first one is take the time to reflect on God's love. The only reason that we have access to salvation is that Jesus Christ has gone the extra mile to love us first. Two verses that are worthy of our reflection. They won't go up here, but they're fairly well known. And I'll tell you where they're at. But the first one is 1 John 4.19. We love because he first loved us. When we were at our worst, when you were at your worst, he loved you. And let that sink in. It, it, it can melt our soul when, when, when that finally takes root in our heart or in our soul. The second is Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Basically saying the same thing. And I love that but God in that verse. Uh, theologians would say that's the shortest declaration of the gospel in the whole Bible. But God. No matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, but God, but God. Does it make sense to you that God has a standard of perfection and holiness and that if you and I were to miss the mark by even a millimeter, even a hair, we miss the mark? 
It's a, it's a standard of perfection and holiness that we have to meet. God is infinitely holy. God is infinitely just. Yet at the same time, he's infinitely loving and he's infinitely merciful. Now think about that. For How can you be both infinitely holy and just and infinitely loving and merciful? We call that a paradox. A paradox is a seeming contradiction. That means the first time we look at it, it's like that's incomprehensible. But actually, it's speaking life and speaking truth. And this is a paradox of the Christian faith. How do holiness and mercy intersect? At the cross. Holiness and mercy intersect at the cross. And that's the only way they could intersect for God to be infinitely holy and just, as well as infinitely loving and merciful. It's Jesus coming and dying on the cross. That's how those two intersect. God's holiness and mercy intersect at the cross. Jesus left the comfort, the perfection, the beauty, the holiness, the majesty of heaven to come down into our brokenness and live a perfect life, perfectly obedient life, died a criminal's death so that you and I could have access to a holy and just and loving and merciful God. What happens when that comes alive in our soul? where we know that we know that we know that that is true. And in some measure, that's a, a lifelong process, but there's something that jumps in our soul. The second thing is to pray and ask. And then here's a question for you. Do you see Jesus as beautiful? Do you see Jesus as worthy of love and devotion? If you don't, ask the Holy Spirit to help you. A couple of verses, the one just below what we just read today, John 14, 16. Jesus says, I'll ask the Father, he'll give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. Then a little bit further down the chapter, John 14, 26, Jesus says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. We have access to the life and the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit who actually comes to live within us and helps us make better choices and empowers us to fulfill that as well. I want to give you two prayers that I pray often. The first one I stumbled onto probably 35, 36 years ago by reading the Song of Solomon. And it grabbed me the first time I ever read it. It just grabbed my heart. And I will pray it over and over and over again, almost, almost every day. I'll pray this prayer. Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 4. <clears throat> Draw me after you and let us run together. I love love, love that prayer. Because for me, I can't, I can't get there from here. The only way I can get there 
is a continual or a surrender to God and to pray this, draw me after you. Let us run together to be the man that you've called me to be. Been married to Linda for 41 years. You know what I believe? She deserves more. She deserves more from me. I, ha- I still have growth in that and many other things as well. But that keeps me in the game. She deserves more. Another prayer uh, I came on to, I, I, I don't know how long ago, but I pray this prayer almost every day as well. Ephesians 1, 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you would know what is the hope of his calling. Now, I pray that for me. I pray that the eyes of my heart would be enlightened, that I would know what is the hope of your calling in me. I also pray this for my wife every day. I pray it for our four kids and six grandsons every day because, again, that's the only hope. I pray that the eyes of my heart would be enlightened. We can't get there from here. It's, it's God opening up our hearts to who he is and what he has done. And let me just read uh, the rest of verse 18. I'll read the whole thing. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you would know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. I love to pray that prayer for myself and for my wife and for my kids. Number three, focus more on what he has done than on what you must do. The essence of the gospel is not about what we do or don't do in order to earn God's favor. It's about what he has already done for us. This is not an excuse for our sinfulness or our sinful patterns. We need to confess our sin and repent of sin as, it, as God brings it to mind. Having said that, I think it's much more important to focus on what God has provided than on what we must do. Duty and delight are not at odds, but I believe that delight will take us further in the Christian faith than duty will. One of my literary mentors is Martin Lloyd-Jones, the late Martin Lloyd-Jones. He pastored Westminster Chapel in London for about 30 years in the mid-20th century. And he was an MD uh, before he became a pastor. He also suffered from severe depression. Many times he was from Wales and he'd go back to Wales and and spend a month in bed, just so depressed. And by God's grace, God led him through that season and he ended up writing a book entitled Spiritual Depression. And it's a great book and and I want to give you what I learned from that book. And if you're here and you're a therapist, you're going to think this is way too simplistic, but I'm just trying to make it as clear and as pointed as I can. What he said in that book, the essence of the book, Spiritual Depression, is that we spend way too much time listening to ourselves instead of speaking to ourselves. I don't know about you, but way more of my thoughts are about what I've done wrong than what I've done right or what God's been able to do through me. Just with my kids and grandkids a couple weeks ago, I think it's awesome 
that my kids like, actually like each other and are willing to come and spend this family vacation. And I saw the grand, I, I didn't see one disagreement or fight uh, amongst them. And I just, that's a blessing from God. One of the things we told our kids when they, we, they moved out is, uh, we'll pay for six months of therapy and then you're on your own. So that's how we kind of gave them the push out of the nest. Uh, but I, I don't know if, if you're like me. Do, do you think more of what's wrong or what you did wrong than, than what God has done and, 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 and what was right and good? And I, I still struggle with that. And the older I get, the more that occurs. What are we supposed to say to ourselves? And I'm not like hyping up this, it's going to be your best day ever or something like that. I'm not saying that. But here's what Martin Luther said. He said, we must preach the gospel to ourselves every day. That one of the first things we do when we wake up after coffee, uh, fumbling around, getting that all going, um, is to remind ourselves of the gospel. The gospel is it's not about what I'm going to do today or what I did yesterday, right or wrong, good or bad. It's really all about what Christ has done. And to continually, to continually remind ourselves, and that's what speaking to ourselves is all about, to, to repeat the gospel to ourselves and remind ourselves of this monumental, sacrificial gift, Jesus leaving the majesty of heaven, coming into our brokenness and living a perfect life so we'd have access to the Father. When you were at your very worst, Jesus Christ died for you. Now, isn't that awesome? Okay, let's move to question number two. I think I can get through this a little more quickly. What about obedience? What's the first stage of obedience? How, how do we start this obedience thing? I think the church has made obedience a religious word and not really a deeply spiritual word. Romans 5.19, it won't be up there, but I'll, I'll just insert the names in here so that you can get a sense of what I'm talking about here. Uh, Romans 5.19, for as through Adam's disobedience, many were made sinners. So even through the obedience of Jesus, many are made righteous. And so the Greek word for obedience, maybe some of you know this, but it's good to review. The Greek word for obedience means to listen. And the literal translation of the word means to listen under. To, to listen from a place of subjection or submission. It's interesting that the word disobedience means to listen from beside, alongside, where we think our parents, we think our boss, uh, we think Jesus. It's just, it's, it's, it's my way or their, you know, it's, it's, it's up to me. But obedience is, is listening from a place of submission. So an obedient life is first and foremost a life that, that makes room to listen for God and then to listen to God. And, and we've made obedience something that we do or don't do when really the beginning of obedience is learning how to listen, learning how to listen. 
And the late Catholic theologian Henry Nouwen asked a great question. He said, what are we listening for? What are we listening for? And he goes on to answer that question. We are listening, listening for the voice of God calling us his beloved. That's what we're listening for. We're listening for the voice of God calling us his beloved. And isn't that what Ephesians 1.18 says? I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened so that you would know what is the hope of his calling. We're listening to the voice of God calling us his beloved. I think of Jesus at his baptism, the voice of the Father comes out. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Mount of Transfiguration. The voice of the Father comes out. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And that's because Peter was talking so much. He was saying, Peter, shut up. Listen to Jesus. But, but that happened to Jesus twice. The this is my beloved son. Have you heard that? You are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. Has it registered in your soul your belovedness to God? That's what I want for you. And that's what I continue to want for myself. There's many voices that vie for our attention in our culture today. The voice that prove that you're a good person. Another voice that says, look what you've done. You ought to be ashamed. Or look what you haven't done. You ought to be ashamed. There's also that voice, nobody really cares about you. There's so much, the incoming, there's so much. Have we heard the voice of God calling us his beloved? Here's how Henry Nouwen puts it. Every time you listen with great attentiveness to the voice that calls you the beloved, you will discover within yourself a desire to hear that voice longer and more deeply. It is like discovering a well in the desert. Once you've touched wet ground, you want to dig deeper and deeper and deeper. Our obedience comes as a grateful response to God's great gift of sending us his son. When we are awakened to the love of Jesus, God Almighty comes to us with joy. I don't know how to define joy. Uh, for me, it's a calm delight no matter what my circumstances are. I know that Peter talks about a joy unspeakable full of glory. And I don't believe that's for, the, for heaven, for, for then. I believe that's for now. That no matter what our circumstances are, we can know God's joy and live a life like that. I think this is the key to obedience. This is the key to worship. This is the key to life. This is the key to assurance. This is the key to hope. This is the key to marriage, parenting, overcoming our sin to know him like this, not just as, as the object of some sentimental love or a generic global love, which is kind of where our culture takes us. It is inevitable that when the object of our heart's worship changes, our behavior, our obedience changes as well. When Jesus saves a person, he or she is filled with this new sense of the glory and the honor and the majesty and the delight of God and in God. We have this new desire bubbling up within us, 
along with a new power. Let's not forget about the Holy Spirit doing in us and through us what we can't do on our own. It is by Jesus' perfect obedience that we're saved, and it is by our growing obedience out of responsiveness to the love that he has offered to us that we express our gratitude to such a great salvation. So I'll close with this. I got two thoughts, quick thoughts. A.W. Tozier, some of you heard that name. A classic book, The Knowledge of the Holy. Short book, if you haven't read it, it's classic. It's awesome. The Attributes of God. The first sentence of the first chapter, he says, what you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Where does your heart go? Duty or delight? And now I'll get a little personal. If your Christian life consists only of a decision that you've made, either recently or a long time ago, and you have no delight in God, you're probably not a Christian. If you have no delight in God. This is one of the things that we at Vital Church sometimes get pushed back on to go into a church and, and say, some of you might not be Christians. But I'm reminded of what Paul said to the church at Corinth. Evaluate yourself to see if you're in the faith. I think it's a good thing for us to do. Making a decision at a VBS or a Christian camp or an evangelistic crusade does not automatically make you a Christian. I believe there needs to be some measure of delight. Now, it gets covered up with the duty stuff, the legalism, the moralism, and all the other stuff. But that's my heart, is that we come from a place of delighting in a beautiful Savior. As Christians, we're to increasingly find our delight and our comfort and our joy in Him.